I know you're all busy getting stuff out right now, but just, just pause for a second and just, just breathe. Just, just take a breath in and out. Now let me ask you a question, having taken that breath, based solely on your own ability to keep doing that, voluntarily breathing in and breathing out, continuing to breathe based solely on your own ability to keep doing that. Could you keep doing that forever? I mean, as long as I can keep inhaling and exhaling, I can live forever. We all know that isn't the way it works as much as we would maybe like it to be. Our breath, in fact, is is a gift of God to us. And it's beyond our control how long we can keep doing that. In today's passage, Daniel in his conversation, he has a conversation with King Belshazzar. And he refers to the Lord in verse 23 as the God in whose hand is your breath. The God who marks out and and controls your life. And if you're a follower of Christ, you're a believer, and you're hearing that again, you're saying, I agree with that. My breath is in his hands. He controls my life. He determines how many days on this earth I'll live. But you know, it's one thing to acknowledge that truth and quite another to actually live it out and to see the implications of saying that I serve and worship the God in whose hand is my breath. How is that changing us? How is that actually affecting our lives? Is my confidence, knowing that, is my confidence really rooted in him? Because the reality is we are all too often more confident in ourselves than we are in God. Yeah? Have we got the right message for today? The right crowd? We do things in our own strength. We take credit for what we've accomplished in life. We muscle through challenges. We reach new heights. And we really come to think more of ourselves than we ought to. And what we'll see in this narrative in Daniel 5 is a contrast between those who are self-confident and those who are truly confident in God. And here's the thing we're going to get after. When my confidence is in anyone but God, I actually place myself in peril of judgment. My confidence must be in Jesus Christ if I'm to enjoy all the things that God has intended for me to enjoy. And so that's what we're going to go after. Let's uh, pray um, that we get this right as we look at Daniel 5. No confidence in self, confidence only in the Lord. Amen? All right, let's pray together. Father, once again... um, just such a privilege for us to be in this place, to be together, to, to get your word open. And uh, Father, this is a tripwire in all of our lives, just relying on ourselves and being confident in ourselves. And Father, I pray that we would avoid that tripwire, see it for what it is, identify it, step over it, 
and place our trust fully in you as we seek to walk with, with your son. So Father, speak to us with great clarity and may we understand and be determined to live for you today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's, uh, let's go after this. Let's talk about self-confidence. Um, self-confidence is actually sold as a virtue in our culture today, isn't it? That you should be self-confident. You, sh- you should um, uh, be so sure of yourself in this life, but it's, it's, it's really not a virtue. For the Christ follower, any self-confidence is actually the exalting of self above God. That's a problem given uh, any number of lyrics that we already sang this morning about how high God is in contrast to who uh, we are. And so we want to uh, not take credit for what we are and what we've accomplished. The Christian life is, and I have always loved this phrase. I, I read it many, many years ago by Phil Yancey. I don't think he takes credit for the phrase, but it's in, in one of his books. And he, he just says that uh, the follower of Jesus Christ needs to live a life that is radically dissimilar from that of the world around it. So if the world exalts this virtue of self-confidence, I need to uh, reject that and say there's something else for me because my life is radically dissimilar from that of anyone else's, that of an unbeliever, that of the world. We need to see self-confidence, listen now, not as a virtue, but as a character flaw in the life of a believer. And we're going to look at the... Uh, account here with Belshazzar, and he's certainly an extreme example of a person who's so self-confident that he actually self-destructs. He mocks God. And Galatians 6, 7 says, God will not be mocked. What you sow, you reap. And what Belshazzar sowed he reaped, and it stands as a warning to us. And so let's look at this first. We're going to look at it in two different parts. The first part is this. If you have a misplaced self-confidence, as Belshazzar did, then certain things are going to be evident in your life. We're going to look at three of these. The first one is this. If you have a misplaced self-confidence, you have no fear of God. No fear of God. Daniel, uh, Daniel 5, let's look at the first few verses here. Uh, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Uh, let me lay out a few things here before we read any further. The uh, timeline of Daniel's service, we looked at this in a previous message. It's kind of laying out what we're doing here. You know that we're studying the book of Daniel in chronological order. So uh, we're moving the narrative parts of the first section of the book um, and interspersing those with the visions of the latter half of the book when those visions happened. And so we did Daniel 4 three weeks ago. We looked at the two visions of Daniel 7 and 8. And we looked at Daniel, we're looking at Daniel 5 today. And you can see that we're coming up right at the end of Belshazzar's reign. We're getting ready for the start of the Medo-Persian Empire, which the context of Daniel 6 and the rest of the vision passages we're going to look at all fit into that. And by this time, you can see right there that Daniel is 80, 82. He's in his, in his early 80s now by this time uh, in, in the narrative, in, in the book. Now, there's a significant gap, therefore, between chapters 4 and chapters uh, 5 as all this plays out. And what we learn is, if you just read the book of Daniel, you think that Belshazzar was the immediate 
uh, successor to Nebuchadnezzar, but that wasn't actually true. We have a second chart uh, to show you here. Uh, these are the Neo-Babylonian kings. This is a certain uh, epoch in uh, the life of the history of Babylon. Nabopolassar was the father of Nebuchadnezzar. He's the one who figures most prominently in the book of Daniel. Daniel uh, chapters 1 through 4 all about his reign. Then his son, uh, Amal Marduk, uh, Neraglisar, I believe, was a son-in-law, Labash Marduk. There's all kinds of coups and intrigues. These are all related to Nebuchadnezzar in one way or another, but they didn't last very long. Then Nabonidus comes along. We're not sure if he's, we don't think he's not directly related to Nebuchadnezzar. He may or may not have been married to Nebuchadnezzar's daughter. And then his son, Belshazzar, you're going to even see some overlap in the timeline there. Because Nabonidus was actually the king and, and Belshazzar was uh, a co-regent with him ruling in Babylon at the time. But um, uh, Nabonidus uh, for 10 years was nowhere near Babylon, the city, but he went out into the empire and was rebuilding various places around the empire. Therefore, the co-regency with his son Belshazzar uh, here. So uh, that's what we're reading. Let's continue on uh, verse 2. Then this Belshazzar gives you a frame up for what's happening and who he is. Uh, Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, now when it says father, again, could have been his grandfather in the, in the sense father, uh, but could also simply mean his predecessor, either of those words, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem, be brought that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone." Now, when he calls for the vessels of gold and of silver that were part of the treasury of the temple in Jerusalem, Nebuchadnezzar is the one who went in. He's the one who took all of that back to Babylon, but he had never used it, just put it in his treasury. And the act of drinking from the cups, listen now, is a direct affront to God, and Belshazzar knows what he's doing. It's, it's defiance. It is a demonstration that he had no fear of God whatsoever. This is him saying, I know this is wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway. I know what God said. I know what everyone else is saying about this, but I don't care. I don't fear God. I'm going to do this myself and I... I think about how many times I've done that. I know what God says. I know it's wrong. I'm going to do it anyway. And when we, when we do that, we're saying, I just don't fear God. I don't fear him. I have more confidence in myself to work this out and do it the way I want to do it. It isn't, by the way, when you start to look at this, it isn't, by the way, that the vessels of gold and silver are anything at all to God. The cups and the pictures themselves are just objects. 
but they represent that which belongs to God. They represent the values and morals of God, the things that God sets out for us to live out. When we sin, the act is one thing. The act of whatever the sin is one thing. But really what we're saying when we sin, whatever the act, whatever the sin is that you commit, whatever your favorite sin is, that's not the real issue. The real issue is that you have become an affront to God, that you have demonstrated you have no fear of him, that you prefer your sin over him. I mean, think about David. He, David, David uh, lusts after a woman, sin. Decides to sleep with her, sin. Commits adultery against his own marriage, against her marriage, sin, sin. Lies about it, sin. Then arranges for the murder of her husband, sin. I mean, you stack up all the sins and you think about all the collateral damage. The sin against Bathsheba, the sin against Uriah, the sin against the people that were complicit in his deceit because he was the king. All the people that are affected by this. And then David's repenting. Finally, after Nathan confronts him, David's repenting. And in Psalm 51, this is what he said. Against you, you only have I sinned. How ridiculous is that? Except that David knew the issue wasn't the adultery. It's not the murder. It's not the deceit. It's not whatever your favorite sin is. That's not the real issue. The real issue is you've offended God. You've said, I just don't fear you. I'm okay with my sin. Somehow Nebuchadnezzar, who had taken these vessels out of the temple in the first place, who who put them in his treasury, somehow he knew that they were sacred. Somehow he, he knew that he should never use them. And certainly he should never use them, as verse 4 says, to praise the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. That he, literally what Belshazzar and his nobles did is they raised a toast using the vessels from the temple in Jerusalem to toast these pagan idols. A blatantly offensive act meant to disrespect, disrespect the God of Israel. Evidence that Belshazzar had no fear of God. Again, I don't know what brand of sin you smoke, and it doesn't really much matter to me. If you're not doing anything about it, it shows you have no fear of God. Further, notice this, you have no appreciation for the past. If you're self-confident, no appreciation for the past. Verse 5. Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand, and the king saw the hand as it wrote, and the king's color changed. You think maybe he's getting a little fear of God in this moment? Right? Because the appearance of God and the judgment of God is about to fall, and all of a sudden, maybe that causes a little bit of fear. Better to fear him and revere him and to worship him up front, wouldn't you say, before this happens? The king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way. He became weak in the knees. His knees knocked together. He, he's terrified. Here's, here's uh, Rembrandt's uh, take on it. 
I don't think Rembrandt was there, so I'm not sure if this is actually a thing, but uh, this is Rembrandt's view of it. And you can see the handwriting on the wall. You can see Belshazzar's shock. You can see the vessels in the picture. You can see the reaction of the nobles. Go on in our story now, verse uh, 10. Verse 7, sorry, the king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords, his nobles were perplexed. That sounds uh, to me a lot like Daniel uh, chapter 2 when Nebuchadnezzar got his dream and he's looking for the interpretation and, and, and the dream itself and they can't give it to him. Verse 10, then the queen comes in and this could be the queen mother. Again, this could be Nebuchadnezzar's daughter. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, speaking of Nebuchadnezzar, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Now the queen, re- queen rehearses uh, here something that Belshazzar would have already known. What Belshazzar did was fail to learn from what he knew to be true about what Nebuchadnezzar had already experienced. And Daniel's going to call him out for this later. He's going to tell him, you already knew all this. So he's not working from a place of ignorance here. He knew the history, but failed to learn from it. Now, this is a thing for me. I love history. I read history. I Love certain epochs of history, but I, I like all of history. I just like learning from it. I like knowing what happened. I know for a lot of you in this room, you don't like history. Do you want to confess that right now or just let the rest of this point play out? What do you want to do? You don't like history. And every time I start to go into the historical section, you grab your phones and check Facebook or you just kind of glaze over and think about something else or you start doodling on your sermon notes. I get it. You don't like history. But that's a challenge when we realize that history actually teaches us something. I like uh, particularly the history of warfare. I don't know why, I just do. And and I've been watching on Netflix this series by Ken Burns on the Vietnam War and just kind of taking it all in. It's not an area of study that I've ever pursued very much. But now I'm watching this. I realize it's controversial. Not everybody agrees with all of his conclusions, but I'm watching this and I'm soaking it all in. And the whole time I'm asking the question, Why did the Americans do exactly what the French had done before them in Vietnam? Why did they do that? Exactly the same. With exactly the same result. Why when they made a colossal error politically, militarily, why did they repeat that error error over and over and over? Why? And I find it frustrating even to watch 
all these decades later thinking about how they just compounded their mistakes by failing to learn from history. It takes incalculable losses before someone finally steps up and says, let's just not do this anymore. But then you're 15 years down the road and, and, and tens and hundreds of thousands of people are, are dead. No appreciation for the past. Sir Winston Churchill said of this in 1948, and I know he built it off of a, a, a quote from someone else, but he said this, those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. So all you people who don't like history, you're doomed. You're doomed. You should have listened better in high school English class or history class. All right, world history lesson over, but you get the point here. The self-confident person says to him or herself, I can make my own way. I can make my own decisions. I don't need to hear what someone else did. The self-confident person won't look around them to see others who have made the same mistake and who would advise a different course of action. If you make this decision, this is where you'll end up. But if you make a different decision, you'll be in a better place. And I feel like at this point, I want to talk to the youth and young adults in the crowd. I want to talk to the teens and the 20-somethings. You think you're blazing a trail. You think you're doing it your own way. When in fact, you're walking down the same paths that every gray-haired person in this room has walked down. You're choosing to experience the same pain, the same sorrow, the same losses, the same consequences that every generation before you has experienced. But you got to make your own way and you're going to fail to learn from history and therefore you're going to be doomed to repeat it. You have no interest in and no appreciation for the past. And judgment awaits. That's what we're hearing. Judgment awaits that attitude, that self-confidence. Maybe not necessarily in terms of a final judgment because if you give your life to Jesus Christ, you're going to escape that final judgment. But all the way along, the consequences of sin are real. The discipline and judgment of God are real. Why subject yourself to that? Here's a third one. If you're self-confident, you love the sound of your own voice. I could have expressed this in many different ways. You always think you're the smartest person in the room. You're self-absorbed. You're full of yourself. You act as if you own the place. That's a good one. You're pleased with yourself. You're, you're condescending toward others. You're too big for your boots. You're self-congratulatory. This is a, an arrogant, self-centered, self-confident person. Verse 13, Daniel was brought in before the king, and the king answered and said to Daniel, you are that Daniel. He knew who he was. Any, any, any claim of ignorance here is bogus. 
You're that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you, uh, that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now remember, he's still terrified. He still has this writing on the wall. His knees are still knocking. He feels like he's going to throw up. He's so afraid, but he's pulling it all together like the consummate, power-broking politician that he is. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give the interpretations. Right? He's ready to throw up. He's just barely holding it together, but I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Remember, he's the co-regent. Nabonidus is the king. Then there's Belshazzar in, in Babylon, so the highest office he could offer Daniel was the third office. So that's what he offers him here. Now, if I could give you a theological term for this paragraph and Belshazzar's little speech, it would be, ready for this, write this down, theological term, blah, blah, blah. That's what that is. <laughs> it's empty flattery. Belshazzar is so enamored by his own intelligence, intelligence his own power, his own position. He's, he's projecting strength, but he's shaking in his boots. You see, the the thing about a a self-confident person, we're talking about us now, the thing about a self-confident person is at the end of the day, in their quiet moments, they actually know they're not that confident. Because every person in this room, unless you're completely delusional, realizes just how frail you are. The self-confident person, it's just, it's really just a veneer. Okay, I'm just putting something on here. And we're going to come back to Daniel's reaction to all of this in the next section. But verse 29, you've got to just jump to the end there. Belshazzar gave the command because Daniel gives the interpretation. Belshazzar gave the command. Daniel was clothed with purple. The chain of gold was put around his neck. And a proclamation was made about him that she, he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. So Belshazzar made good on the, on the whole thing, on the promise that he made when Daniel gave the interpretation. Even though it seems that he, we're going to see this in a moment, he didn't really hear what Daniel said. If, I mean, if he really heard what Daniel said and listened to it and acted upon it, his response would not have been to elevate him to an office that was not in a few minutes even going to exist. And to give him wealth and honors that would, that would simply disappear as soon as the Persians came through the gate. He didn't hear what Daniel said to them. And it seems that Bel. Shazar was just living in denial that he was, he was, in this moment, you even ask yourself the question, why was he even throwing this party? Was this, was this Belshazzar just living in denial like those with self-confidence actually do? They live in denial? Is that what this is? Is he living in denial of the truth? Or, or does he know the truth and he's just decided, you know what I'm going to do? It's, it's carpe diem. It's it's uh, let's eat, let's drink, let's be merry, for tomorrow we die. The only thing he had off there was the timing because it was actually tonight. 
So maybe that's it. Maybe it's just a completely hedonistic approach to what he knows is happening. Because the reality is he had to know that Cyrus and his armies were coming for him. You read the historical record here. (laughs) History. Try not to glaze over. I know who you are. I see you all. The historical record already shows us that by this time, Cyrus was just 50 miles from Babylon. Did he know? Did, he, did Belshazzar know he was coming? It's only 50 miles away. That in fact, his father Nabonidus had been defeated three days before this feast, just 50 miles south of Babylon. Belshazzar throws a party for a thousand nobles and he knows the empire's coming to an end. I mean, this is a guy who just likes to hear himself talk. Remember, we looked at these visions of Daniel 7 and Daniel 8. We looked at them already because they'd happened before this event. And they predicted the end of the Babylonian Empire and the rise of Cyrus. Belshazzar may have known that this was coming from those visions. And his use, this, this makes this just that much more horrendous. His use of the vessels of the temple then was an intentional move toward God somehow to show God or to show these nobles that he was more powerful than God. Only he wasn't. Verse 30, that very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed and Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. Now listen, the word of God had been proclaimed by the visions of Daniel 7 and 8. Daniel himself, interpreting the writing on the wall, which we'll look at in a moment, was the word of God. And Belshazzar couldn't hear it. He was too busy talking. And I see this in in so many of us. I I see this in myself. I'm so self-confident. I'm so busy talking to myself and convincing myself of things making things up myself while the Bible, God's revelation, sits closed. I don't consult him about decisions. When I'm facing trouble, I think about how's, how, how I'm going to get out of it the best way I know how. I don't consult his counselors. I don't read his word. I don't get in prayer before him. And this has to change. If I'm going to avoid the judgment of God in my life. All right, those are the marks of a self-confident person as seen in Belshazzar's life. But if you have a rightly placed confidence in God, this is the second part now. If you have a rightly placed confidence in God, and there are many, many in this room who have this. Your confidence is in the Lord. Here's, Here's one of the characteristics that you'll have. No fear of man. See, when you fear God, you actually don't fear man. When your confidence is in the Lord, you don't fear people around you. Now, look at verse 17. Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts, he's just offered them all this, interpret the words on the wall, I'll give you all of this. Let your gifts be for yourself. Give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. Obviously, uh, Daniel didn't have any fear of Belshazzar and he was the most powerful man around. 
And as I get older, I feel much less fear of man. I'm actually loving that feeling because I think I've spent a lot of my life fearing people, thinking too much about what they think of me. And the older I get, I feel much less that way. I, I don't try to impress people uh, very much. I, I don't feel like I need to make people happy or be a people pleaser. Now, I, I want you to understand how, how incredibly shocking that is for a pastor to say something like that. Because this is, this is a, 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 a defeating thing in the life of so many pastors. They, you're trying to please so many people that every single one of you came here today with an expectation of me, whether you realize it or not. I don't care. Respectfully. I want to please the Lord, amen? I want to please the Lord. And I, I think if I please the Lord, it'll work out for the rest of us. And as a principle, the older you get, it seems, the less you care about any of that. And I care much less about those things than I did 17 years ago when we started this church. Now, Daniel's mature in his faith. We've already said he's already into his 80s. He's not really needing to impress anyone anymore. I think by the time you get to your 80s, you're definitely not on the people-pleasing program. <laughs> he's, he's confident in God. And you see that in every decision and every word that Daniel speaks. None of it wasted. And if you're a self-confident person, you are susceptible to the opinions and attitudes of others, and you have to withstand the onslaught of what other people think about you, and you just need more self-confidence. The reason why I feel so beaten down by what they said to me is because I'm not self-confident enough. Wrong! It's because you don't believe what God said about you. Shazar's great feast on the eve of their destruction, was that an attempt to please the nobles, to show them how awesome he was? Look, you should think nice things about me because Cyrus is 50 miles away and this whole party's coming to an end. And I want the last thing you think about to be this great party that I threw for us. I don't need that kind of pressure. I don't. None of you need that kind of pressure in your life. All I need to do is remind myself that I'm a son of the king, the king of kings. I have confidence in who I am, and that acts as a buttress against what people think. I mean, I think one of my um, top, you know, I don't know, all the Bible's inspired. I love all of it. But do you have some favorites? Do you have some favorite verses? Hello? Do you have some favorite verses? Galatians 1.10 is one of my favorite verses because this has been a problem for me. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. It isn't possible to be a servant of Christ and to be consumed with what people think of me. So let's play that out a little bit in our own lives. Some of you are paralyzed because of what your estranged spouse says about you. Some of you are beaten down 
because of the way you were raised and what a mom or a dad said to you the whole time you were growing up. Some of you are hurt and wounded by what your boss says about you or what a former boss said about you. Listen, you are not what your abuser said about you. You are not what any other person says about you. You are what God says about you. And you can be confident in that. Here's the reason why. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 4 and 5 says this. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves. We are not self-confident. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us. But our sufficiency, our confidence is from God. Amen? Notice it's the confidence that we have through Christ. The only reason why we have any confidence in God, again, is not because we've mustered up the confidence, but because Jesus Christ has purchased the ability for us to have that confidence. His death on the cross, his glorious resurrection from the grave, his defeat of sin and death is the basis on which we can be confident in God. Nothing we have done. So no matter what anyone else says, no fear of man. Because my identity is in Jesus Christ. Jesus has moved us. Whatever lies we would believe, Jesus has moved us from lost to found. Jesus has moved us from slave to free, from orphan to heir. Jesus has moved us from dead in sin to alive in Christ, from condemned to forgiven. Jesus has moved us from worthless to worthy, from separated to near, from enemy of God to friend of God. That's our identity. So Hebrews 13, 6. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? What can man do to me? Nothing. I don't fear man. And then secondly, if you have a rightly placed confidence in God, you have high praise for God alone. Notice how many times Daniel acknowledges God and what he says, uh, picking it up now at verse uh, 18. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he, God, gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. The reality of that is that Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar both knew that whatever power Babylon had, whatever was vested in the king, it came from God. Now listen, Nebuchadnezzar wasn't always in that place of understanding that, but that came to him 
Verse 20, when his heart, Nebuchadnezzar's heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind. His mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys and he was uh, fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. I mean, he just recounts the events of Daniel chapter 4 that we looked at a few weeks ago, and he shows how God was behind all of that too. The major theme of the book of Daniel playing out again, that God is sovereign. He is the most high. But here's the thing with self-confidence. It needs to tell its own story and always make self the hero of the story. When I'm confident in God, I'm more than happy to give him the glory to praise him and to worship his great name. I love to pray and to thank him for everything he's given to me. Acknowledge that all the good things in my life are the result of him. What do you have that you did not receive, we're asked. I love to worship him to lift my hands, to lift my voice, to clap my hands, to to worship the Lord with abandon. High praise for God alone. And then look at this finally. When you're confident in God, you speak the truth of God boldly. There's so much we could pull out of these next few verses, but what strikes me is just the boldness of Daniel to speak the word of God. Verse 22, and you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this. You knew all of this. You knew about me. You knew about Nebuchadnezzar. You knew the story. You knew about the vessels of gold and of silver. You knew it all. Don't pretend like you didn't. But you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them and you have praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone which do not see or hear or know. They're nothing. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways You have not honored. And then he goes on to interpret the writing, and from his presence the hand was sent. This writing was inscribed, and this is the writing that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Belshazzar already knew. He knew what this was going to say. Mene. God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Too confident in yourself. No acknowledgement of God. And Perez or Parson, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. The writing on the wall struck terror into the heart of Belshazzar and the nobles. It signaled God's judgment on their life. Numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. How can we not read that and think about our own lives? Our days are numbered. Our lives are weighed. 
And all that's left is for the judgment on that. Am I a follower of Jesus Christ? And will I bypass the judgment because the blood of Christ has cleansed me of all of that? Or will I be found wanting and find myself under the condemnation of God's judgment? This signal God's judgment on people who, like so many today, treat God with contempt, declaring their own self-confidence. The God-confident ones are bold to speak the word of God and live it out. Is that you? Is that me? First, to apply it to situations in our own lives, to boldly speak the word of God, not first to others, but to boldly speak the word of God first to me. To let the, let the word of God shine its light in my life. To have it speak into your marriage and in your family. How committed are you to read it, to understand it, to allow it? To inform every aspect of your life. Again, Daniel said to Belshazzar, you knew all of this. How seriously do we take the command and the commission that God has given to us to make disciples, including making disciples of ourselves and making disciples of our families and making disciples of those that God has put in our path. To pray for boldness, to share the, the word of God, to share Jesus with people. The people all around us who are projecting a self-confidence, but who at the end of the day know that they don't have it. We're in jeopardy of judgment. When your confidence is in God, nothing will hold you back from proclaiming the authority of God's word without apology, from doing exactly what it is, speaking the truth of God boldly. Here's where I want us to kind of spend a few moments now. We've heard all of that, and it's a lot. But I just want you to close up your Bibles and put your pens and notes away and Turn your phones off. Just set them aside. Let's get it nice and quiet in here. Just close your eyes with me for a moment. And I just want you to breathe. Just breathe. The God in whose hand is your breath has spoken to us, spoken to you, spoken to me about confidence. Will it be in ourselves or will it be in him? And is there anything that you have thought of along the way here that you need to repent of? Something that you need to change? Just breathe. And pray to the one in whose hand is your breath. Repent of that. Give that over to him. Make the determination right now that there's going to be a change happening. 